What's going on, everyone? You're tuned into the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's guest on the show is Justin McLeod. Justin is the founder and CEO of Hinge, one of the most popular dating apps in America with a focus towards long-term relationships rather than just hookups. We spoke with Justin all about his upbringing and early career, battling with addiction, his personal love story with his wife, Kate, how he got the idea for Hinge in the early days of building the company, his thoughts on the current landscape of dating in the future, and much, much more. Here we go. Uh, I, so I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I was born there. I was there until I went off to college. And uh, I was a uh, troublemaker, I think would probably be like the one word summary of, of my childhood. I went to a uh, Catholic school growing up. And was always in trouble. Uh, I was <laughs> in the principal's office, I think, almost daily. And uh, detention was a regular stop for me uh, after school. And uh, I, yeah, and I continued um, through, through grade school up through into high school and even college. Uh, but I, I also had this kind of dual personality where I was president of student government. I still had good grades and all that stuff, but I was always in disciplinary uh, trouble as well. So I kind of had this. Would you say, would you say it's because like the, just sort of the system wasn't designed for, for you, um, like in terms of applying yourself? Cause it sounds like you, you know, you were obviously smart kid and kind of where, where, where your interests were, you were, you were applying yourself, but when it comes to the actual like process of going to school and studying or whatever, uh, it wasn't as, I don't know, for Yeah, you. I just, I don't think I was really into structure or authority. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just, it wasn't my, uh, I just had almost like an allergic reaction, I think, to it. And, um, and uh, and just didn't I just didn't have a very healthy respect for my teachers or authority. I think from day one. Were you the yeah. same way with your parents, or was it just you know at school? I think not really with my parents. I got along with my parents quite well. I think it's probably that my parents were so um, empowering and kind of laissez-faire, and then I went into a catholic school where they were like very strict and i was just like this is not how i'm used to dealing with people i also had this very confusing experience of having parents um my dad who was an atheist and told me god didn't exist and then i would go to school and they would tell me you know if you don't believe in god you're going to hell and i i knew someone was lying and i think i just generally lost trust for adults and them believing that they knew what they were talking about uh, at right. an early age you know it, yeah. it's funny i i felt kind of the same way because uh, up until high school, I went to an Armenian school. Pat and I are both uh, of Armenian descent. And so it's typical for Armenians to just have facial hair like immediately after they're born. And so, you know, everyone there, I mean, it was the normality, right? I got to Catholic high school. I had to be shaven on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's like not okay because this thing, I mean, like I cleanly shaved it to one this morning. For those that can't see, it's a very, uh, it looks like a beard already, right? So, I mean, I used to get in trouble all the time for not shaving or the girls with their skirt had to be right below yeah. the kneecap. We, had, we like, had all those rules. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, how does that have anything to do with being a good citizen, right? Like, what does that have to do with being a good Christian? 
You know, like it, it didn't add up to me. And if you're the kind of kid, which clearly you were, that questions things that don't necessarily make sense, right? Like if someone said, don't do drugs or don't, you know, ride a bike without a helmet or don't, you know, wear your seatbelt. Like these are logical, you know, they're, they're protecting you, your safety and your health. But it's like, what is my yeah. facial hair doing at you? It's well, not, I didn't it's not follow any of those other, <laughs> all those other things you just said. I also didn't do any of those sure, things. Either, sure. But, uh, but I'm sure you understood the reason why those rules were in place. Yeah. 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 You know, Joseph, I, I was actually in a very similar spot when I was younger and, and kind of to your point on um, sort of losing the trust, you, you sort of start questioning everything of like, do do people even know what they're saying or doing, like even in their adult years? And you kind of grow up with this kind of like skepticism of just if, you know, if things are actually the way, you know, they, they seem to be, or things are, or um, if there's more truth to be discovered there. Right. And, and you obviously, as you grow older, you kind of learn more and more and you do realize people don't know what the hell they're talking about ever. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's something that definitely plays a big role in life. So I guess for you kind of how, I, I guess, how, how did that, maybe set you apart from maybe other people around you? Like, did you sort of notice that maybe not that you were an outcast, but maybe weren't like fitting in as much with people around you or did you kind of do a good job of, of transitioning, you know, in between fitting in and sort of standing out? Yeah, I think I, I kind of balanced them. I, I wanted to, I definitely wanted to fit in with my peers you know, I didn't necessarily believe in like the structure, but I had, I had a huge desire to fit in with my peers and to feel a sense of belonging. And, uh, so that was like a very big piece for me growing up. And I really wanted a lot of validation from peers, from girls. From, uh, so that was always really important to me, but, um, just not so much following the rules. So what was your plan, you know, post high school? It sounded like, you know, you're this troublemaker kind of kid. I mean, did you at all or were you at all concerned with where you'd end up? I mean, who you'd become and, you know, who do you associate with, et cetera? I mean, what was next for Justin after after high school was done? Uh, well, I mean, I, I went to college. I got into Colgate, uh, upstate New York, uh, and I... Uh, I don't really know what my plan was. I mean, I, I was interested in law. I, you kind of look around to your parents and what they're doing, right? And my mom had gone back to law school when she was 40 years old and then um, was a prosecutor and then later a judge. My dad, my dad ran his own company. And so I thought maybe run my own company, maybe become a lawyer. Uh, but I honestly wasn't totally sure. And I And I went into college being a... I think I wanted to be an English major. I, I think mainly inspired by a, a high school senior English teacher that I had, Mrs. Calderwood. And I uh, just like loved her. And I think she really lit me up with a passion for literature and for English. And so I went in with that. But then once I was in college, I transitioned pretty quickly to uh, rely back on my strength, which was math and econ i was a mathematical economics major and political science major i you know i i went through uh basically my my uh, high school's math program by the time i was a freshman or, or, or a sophomore i think i'd gone through like bc calculus and like pretty much everything that you could take uh and so then i didn't even take math my junior and senior year but i but i just like 
that was like really easy for me and a big strength of mine. And, uh, and the sort of, once again, I think wanting to fit in the cool kids at Colgate were going to go into banking and they were going to go work at on wall street. And so I got drawn into wanting to do that. So, so I, I um, I think I saw you graduated around 06. Did you end up going to wall street after that? Um, cause I know it was a few years later when you ended up getting your MBA, uh, going back to school. So what did you sort of do in between undergrad and, uh, business school? I did not, I didn't get a job. So, uh, so when I got to college, I, uh, you know, I, I would say I had like a healthy balance of being, you know, student government and getting good grades. And then also, uh, what it turned in from being a sort of class clown troublemaker in grade school to, uh, pretty hard partying in high school. And then when I got to college, it was like pretty much just drinking and drugs and sometimes go to class. Uh, so I, uh, I still could manage to get by once again, uh, with, with decent grades, but I, I wasn't like putting a lot of effort into my job search. I think by the time I was getting to the end of college, I didn't have, uh, honestly, I was just a really lost soul, I think at that point. And I was applying a bunch of random jobs after I didn't, you know, I would get like the super day interviews at Goldman Sachs and all these different places, but I would always kind of just like botch it in the end, go out drinking the night before my interview, just like doing really dumb stuff. And the, uh, I applied to this random job that I thought was a law firm. Turned out it was actually a management consulting firm called Patiglio, Rabin, Todd McGrath. I showed up for the interview, got along with the CEO and he hired me. And so I ended up doing management consulting in Washington, D.C. for biodefense and defense logistics stuff. Like a totally random thing that I was not planning on doing. Justin, for those that are listening now that are in college or post-college or even earlier or in the middle of their careers that, you know, are maybe lost souls, right? Maybe they haven't figured it out. Maybe their head's all over the place. Maybe they're confused about what the future holds in store looking back you know to that period of time for you what are some of the things that you did to maybe help you get out of that if at all i'm not sure that i was doing almost anything to help me get out of that at the time i uh you know i i graduated college and on the day that i graduated I remember waking up hungover and I had to run back home to meet my parents before we were supposed to go over to the graduation ceremony. And I remember thinking to myself on that walk home, it just felt like the steering wheel to my life was broken. It just felt like every day, you know, I had these big ambitions. I, I, I thought, and people always told me that I had all this potential that I was squandering. I believe that I had this potential, but and I, and I would, I would always be like turning over a new leaf and I'm going to do it different this time. And, but you know, then the next night my friends would be going out and I'd be like, ah, oh, well, but I'll just go, I'll just go out with my friends tonight and then I'll turn over a new leaf tomorrow. And that tomorrow just like kept going and going and going for years. Uh, and I don't know, something just really snapped on graduation day. I didn't get the job that I wanted. I'd lost the girl all because of partying and drinking and drugs and, and, I was just like, that's it. Like I, I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't know what the point of living is if it's not 
like if I can't drink, but I'm going to try to figure it out. And, and I stopped, I, I graduated college and, um, I, I stopped drinking and I went and took my job and I threw myself into that. And I just showed up where I, where I was at that point. I, I really think that's all you can do is just, you can only, you can only act where you are in the present moment. And so if I'm in DC working at some random consulting firm, I'm going to be like the best possible management consultant <laughs> doing defense logistics that I can be. And that's what I threw myself into. And that allowed me to get opportunities to work on cooler and better and bigger projects within that consulting firm. And then that's what allowed me to apply to uh, and get to Harvard Business School with a much better track record than I was coming out of college with. For sure. You know, that's a pretty great lesson in, you know, at least my takeaway from this, others that are listening may think differently, but that you can't really control anything besides the moment that you're in currently, right? Whether it's a relationship with a person, with your parents, friends, a job, just embrace that moment that you're in, right? The present. If you keep thinking about what's going to come after that, well, shit, I'm a management consultant now, but I want to be an entrepreneur. You know, I want to start a tech company. I want to go run a restaurant business, right? Whatever. You give yourself all these anxieties and nerves that you really don't necessarily need. And you block your mind from actually being in the moment and actually learning from perhaps something that you don't want to do long term. But because you're present, that leads to other things and other positive things that come along the way. I mean, does that make sense, Justin? I mean, I don't know. I, I think that makes total sense. And yeah, you're right. And not only that, but all those anxieties about I should be doing something else, or I should be somewhere else, or I wonder what I'm going to do prevent you from showing up and actually being a good management consultant. And if you're not a good management consultant, people aren't going to hire you to be a good anything else. So I think that that's, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's it's common, obviously, for people to have grand visions of where they sort of want to end up, even though it might not be like a clear cut vision of this is what I want to be. It's like, generally speaking, this is the type of sort of life I want to have. But it's not always clear what the what the first step is towards that because it's such a big, hairy, like audacious goal, right? So, it, it, you know, obviously, in your case, which I think is was you know probably pretty transformational if you were to look back at it, is like you sort of landed in a spot that you weren't planning. Like you mentioned, you thought it was a law firm and it ended up being a management consulting firm. Like you weren't actually going out and being like, I want to be a management consultant or I want to be this and this is the the sort of job I want to have. You just sort of took that opportunity and one thing led to another, um, which sort of ended up, you know, perhaps putting you on the path that you sort of, you know, imagined being on. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, I... I... I definitely did not imagine when I was in grade school that one day I would start an app for like a dating app. For <laughs> I mean, that was not the life plan. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because when I look back on my life, the, the, the pieces were there, the threads were there. I mean, some other pieces that from my childhood was, uh, you know, I loved, so I, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, but I got into this program called the talent identification program it was like a run by duke and if you took the sat in seventh grade and you got a certain score then you could go to nerd camp during the summer which i would go do and learn to code and i like loved coding like seventh eighth ninth and i really got into it that was like one thread that was happening uh another thread was just my i think 
we talked about my deep desire to fit in and uh and that probably stemmed out of a relationship from um grade school where i was just totally in love with this girl she's like my girlfriend fifth sixth seventh grade and then she just dumped me one day out of the blue and it was a small school and i got ostracized out of the out of the group and and um that actually caused me to choose a different high school rather than the theater school all my friends from grade school were going to go to and i was like i'm totally turning this around i am like uh i will like never be ostracized again and i was like and the huge way that i got validation was getting attention from especially the girls in the class so like i was just it was my mind was just so much around dating and relationships uh and so that i mean there's just interesting to see those like threads of how much i loved coding how much i was like into dating and relationships and these and eventually that that inspiration would turn into something but not what i imagined it to be so how did long- this all take yeah, did this all come together um, while you were in business school in terms of this sort of um, realization that these are all things that I'm interested in or good at and maybe there could be something here? It's funny. I remember when I was in business school, there was uh, a guy, his name was Sunil Nagaraj, and he was in the class, like one or two, I guess two classes ahead of me there. And he came back and he had started a dating website called Triangulate or something. And I remember him presenting to my section and I remember thinking like, wow, like that sounds like a fun job day to day. Like just, you know, creating a piece of software that connects people. And I wonder how you would do that and how you do the algorithm. I like really, my mind just like really grasped on that. I remember that, but then I kind of put it out of my mind. Uh, the, the inspiration for hinge came really out of like a moment of <laughs> desperation. So uh, in college, I, I had a girlfriend uh, her name was Kate and I like we had this very like tumultuous on and off relationship all through once again because of the partying and the drinking and the drugs and uh so we finally kind of split ways she actually ended up transferring to Wellesley to get away from me and uh so we split up and then uh that's when I got sober uh four years later I'm in business school and I'm like, okay, like I'm sober for four years. Like I'm in Harvard Business School. I'm going to reach back out and I'm going to fix things. And so I reached back out to Kate and uh, she told me in so many words that it was too late. She was living uh, in London with another guy who she would actually gone and gotten the job that I wanted. Uh, <laughs> she went and got the job at Goldman Sachs, met a guy there and moved him to London. And so I was... Uh, totally dejected by that. And I think I just really struggled to meet people. The business school is such a party environment and a lot of the social interaction revolved around drinking and partying. And that was, it was hard for me because the first time that I'd really been in a social environment that intense since I stopped drinking. And so I just kind of stayed away from that. It was just hard for me to be around that. I just felt so much pressure uh, to drink and to take part in that. And, so I just kind of steered clear. So it was hard for me to meet new people. Uh, and so when I reached back out to Cade, uh, you know, and she told me to go shove it in so many words, I, I don't know. I was just sitting in class one day and this like inspiration for this idea of, of being able to connect through Facebook, uh, through your friends, this idea that, you know, people, most people my age, I mean, this is 2011, didn't use 
dating websites, dating apps, you know, t- Tinder didn't exist. None of these things existed yet. And so the idea was, well, if what people used to do then was like cruise Facebook and, you know, check out your friend's photos and you'd see someone you kind of liked and maybe ask them about them. I was like, well, what if you could just make that a really simple experience of essentially going through your friend's friends on Facebook, seeing who like tagging the people that you liked and if they liked you back, we'd let you know. Uh, I don't know, this idea came and I just became completely obsessed with it almost overnight. Like it was February 9th, 2011. And I think like from that day forward, Hinge has taken up the majority of my brain real estate. Justin, I know this probably doesn't have much to do with being a founder or an entrepreneur, but I'm just curious, I guess maybe just personally, what was it? about Kate that drew you back to her four years after? And what was it that just didn't let you get her off of your mind and just move on? I mean, why was it that you were just so focused on that and couldn't get out of that? I mean, you were in Harvard Business School. I mean, you were like doing so well. But why was she just stuck in your mind for so long? Yeah. Well, uh, preview, she's my wife now. But uh, so, <laughs> um, I two two reasons I think one is you, you just have to meet Kate. She's like one of the most magnetic, dynamic, incredible, brave, fun, beautiful. I mean, I don't know. There was just something really magnetic about our connection and about her. And I just compared every girl ever since ever since her like to her and I just no one what it just no one felt like home to me the way that she did and so that I think is one piece of it and another piece of it though I think is I I really romanticized that relationship you know it was like the one that got away and as great as Kate is and she is totally incredible I had her even I would say higher on a pedestal in terms of romanticizing the relationship and beating myself up for letting it go and so it was just really hard for me to move on without resolving and like going back and figuring out a way to close that chapter. You know, when I asked the question, I didn't think of it as a business question, but after your answer, it just confirms that you were meant to be an entrepreneur. And let me tell you why, because entrepreneurs are crazy enough to think that an idea that they have in their head is just so damn good that even if everybody else thinks it's wrong for them and it's wrong for the world, they just keep doing it. I mean, they just keep going. I mean, like you and Kate and the fact that you didn't necessarily care about what should have been or what her circumstances were with dating another guy, you were like, I'm going to make this happen. And I'm sure we'll touch upon it later, but that is what entrepreneurship is that even if people are like, hey, you know what? That's a horrible idea. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think you should be doing that. You shouldn't waste your time pursuing that. In your mind, there's just this conviction that it's going to work. I don't know what it is. You can't describe it. There's no word for it, right? And that's how I describe it. So I just I just love that that's how it ended up and that you are an entrepreneur because that's exactly what this is all about. It's exactly what this is all about. I think that entrepreneurship is is definitely the marriage of persistence and flexibility i think persistence is really important and i am so persistent i mean that's probably another piece that's like, <laughs> always been a piece of me is like i 
uh, I will just keep showing, I will wear people down until <laughs> like I get my way. I mean, you've talked to my parents uh, and anyone who tried to teach me in, in Catholic school, but I am hugely persistent. But I do think that you have to pair that persistence with a radical level of flexibility as well, because um, I, I definitely seen entrepreneurs who are persistent and inflexible and they will just bang their head against the wall and keep trying the same thing over and over again and never really make any progress. So you have to also have that really dogged practicality where you'll keep changing and keep adjusting and keep learning and be like, okay, well, what did I do wrong there? And what can I do next time? And like how, and just like keep that learning engine going of just constantly believing that yes, like we will get there and I'll make it work, but I'm not just going to try the same thing over and over again. Like I'm going to do something different. Is, is that something that you sort of learn in hindsight? Like, or did you sort of have that self-awareness early on just from maybe seeing your dad or, or other entrepreneurs around you that perhaps that was like a trait or characteristic they had? Or or did you sort of, ha- um, I don't know, have people around you, you know, being very vocal and open about certain things to, to sort of give you that, uh, I guess, you know, information to be like, okay, well, this isn't working because X, Y, and Z I'm seeing, I'm seeing the feedback they're giving me and it's not working. Like, how was it for you? I think I was probably, I think I've always had the persistence. I don't know what it is. I I think it's maybe genetic or familial or whatever. I think my parents are both very persistent people as well. Uh, and resilient people. The, the flexibility part was definitely learned and learned later. Uh, I think the biggest teaching for me uh, was after college. One was trying to get sober, which was like very hard for me all through college. And I was the same thing, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results and learning that I could actually uh, adapt and change eventually and really make progress on that front. Um, Right around the same time, I really dove into, uh, yoga and meditation back in like this like 2006 2007 and uh it was another thing where i wasn't it was like the first thing in my life you know we talked about before when i was in college i kind of defaulted back to math and econ because my whole life i always just did what was easy to me and if something wasn't easy to me then i just i just like ignored it like i if i remember like french class like french I, i'd have to study for french you can't just like French doesn't come, nat- maybe it's come as naturally as some people, but for me, I, I just, it was hard. So then I just didn't do it. And I was like, well, I'm not good at French. Like that's just life. And so I'm not going to try. Uh, so I think that yoga is another thing where I started and I was absolutely horrible at it. I couldn't touch my toes. I couldn't do anything, but I just kept showing up and I learned the value of just like adapting, adapting, persistence, like what happens. And then pretty soon, you know, you can touch your toes and then do handstands and all the other stuff. And it was, I think the, the, those lessons dually of, of sobriety, spirituality, yoga, some combination of those three things and watching myself change so much over those ensuing years and just taught me something about the value of, um, you know, that learning loop uh that you really can change and you really can adapt and that gave me a lot of confidence i think going forward that if something wasn't working then i would figure it out i wouldn't just give up and say like oh well that's just isn't a good idea or this just isn't working or i'm just not good at this right um so it's it's 2011 you mentioned um you've reached out to kate you said sorry dude but i'm i'm already living life in london you know it's not gonna work and you are 
you know, thinking about this idea, you're, you know, you're sort of aware of, of what your interests are and what your skills are. Um, and so what happens next? Like what's the immediate next step? Do you start building the app? Do you start, uh, you know, reaching out to people and asking them, Hey, would you use this? Like what was the, the next step? Yeah. So there was this, uh, uh, last chance dance party coming up at HBS. So part of it was to fuel that and like allow people to match. That was like the original, that was kind of what also sparked the idea as this thing was coming up. And, uh, so I went and I ran to a friend in my section who worked at Google and could code and worked as product manager. And I asked her like, okay, I have this idea. How do we get it built? What do we do? She joined on with me. We each threw in a little bit of money. We hired uh, a development team down in Argentina to build a prototype of, of this app and got some people on it and people were playing with it matching. And it just got me, I just really believed in this idea so much that if you could create a, a dating service that didn't have stigma to it, it would appeal to this whole generation because it just seemed like such an untapped market. None of my friends use dating websites or if they did, they wouldn't admit it. And uh, it was just like a, it just was like this huge untapped market. And I was like, the, the problem with it is that it has this stigma around it. And if you can make it really simple and really easy and you just sign on to Facebook and your profile's already done, your picture's already done, uh, then uh, I think it will really like break it open to this whole new generation. But was this like a hunch that you had or was it like your own personal feeling or did you sort of observe that, you know, maybe people aren't talking about it, but this is what's happening or like were friends telling you about, about this? Like how much sort of field knowledge did you have when it came to that hypothesis? It wasn't really a lot of field knowledge. It was more just a sense of intuition and just basic, the, just the basic facts that people were spending more and more time online. Uh, they were getting comfortable interacting socially online and the belief that it was a core problem. I mean, the, the number one thing back in the day before the dating apps came along was the, the, the chief complaint about dating was it's so hard to meet people. I never meet anyone. Uh, and it just seemed so obvious that this is where, where it was going to go. Uh, and, and you just had to figure out like, what is the thing that people don't use it for? And it was all the stigma. And then you had to say, well, well, why is there stigma? And it was stigma because it was so hard You'd going through, you have to fill out this long profile and you'd have to make up a screen name and you would have to pay money. And so all of that effort, you would only do that if you really struggled in the real world and no one wants to admit that they struggle in the real world. And so it just had this kind of doom loop of, um, uh, you know, stigma to it. But again, if you could, if you could have this like one click sign on and make it really simple and really easy, then it would break it open to this whole new market. And I started working on that. I moved to, well, it's kind of a long story, but I, I moved out to California with, with Francis, the person I was working on it with originally. She decided to stay at Google. I didn't really know San Francisco. Uh, and so I decided to move back to DC where I actually knew people and I had formed a network. That's where I worked before and start the company there. I had one of my best friends from college come on and join me. And we started um, building this app that, again, the idea was just make it really, really simple and easy and and really lower the bar of what it took to to get on 
And then right around that time, uh, we hear of this app in LA uh, that people are talking about. Uh, and then of course, like that just totally exploded and Tinder totally exploded. And up until that point, you know, we were going around, I was like begging. I mean, you come out of Harvard Business School and you think the way that you, uh, you know, start a company is you write a business plan, you go talk to some venture capitalists, they give you $30 million and then you go build a company. <laughs> then you have like a very rude awakening uh, coming out of school. Like that is not how it works at all. Uh, we couldn't get anyone to give us any money at all. Not even like seed money. No one believed us. Everyone was like, the dating market is totally saturated. Match.com owns this market. You'll never, you know, blah, blah, blah. Young people don't use dating apps. Young people don't spend money, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but then Tinder started to explode. No one could invest in Tinder because it was owned by IAC at the time. And I don't think anyone expected it to, to do eventually what it did. But it created enough of a buzz that now we were basically the only other game in town that you could invest in. And then it really changed things. And then we were like turning down money because we like, I didn't even know what I would do with all the money that people were offering me to, to put into the company. Justin, in the early days, what was the difference between uh, Tinder and Hinge from a user perspective? It really was the, the basic difference was friends of friends versus people nearby. Uh, that is like the superficial difference between the two. And as a result, Hinge had the reputation uh, of a more intentioned, uh, you know, more relationship oriented thing. It was more like people acted like you would at a house party or a dinner party or a wedding, not a club. <laughs> so I think that was kind of the, the idea is that there was just a lot more social accountability. We had last names. We show, we sort of didn't, ask for more information up front, like your school and all these other things, instead of just like one photo. So there was um, a sense that you really knew these people. And there was always a friend in common. You always had a Facebook friend in common with everyone that you saw on the app. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, cause this was a time in, I mean, in any sort of industry, like where there's this kind of shift, right. From in this case it was like web 1.0 dating sites to like web 2.0 mobile, you know, geo locations being able to like f you know find people in your proximity and facebook social media like all this new stuff that really didn't exist when for example match.com or some of these other companies were were sort of in their heyday and so um in your case and in tinder's case you guys are you guys both have different sort of assumptions or hypotheses as to as to how people want to connect and date and so you're sort of building your own kind of apps to fulfill that. But in hindsight, now looking back, <clears throat> you know, maybe there are other things too. Like, what did you learn about the behavior of people when it comes to how they want to connect with people and how they want to date? Like, what are some other things that maybe you didn't know about or had no idea that it would be a fundamental part of this whole process? Well, I had, I had the really wrong assumption. So to, to step back a couple steps, the original version of Hinge was uh, still actually on desktop. It was just social and you would sign in and it was so complex and overly engineered and a quote unquote social, but you'd log on, you would start answering like questions about your friends. You would, 
you know, basically be setting up their profiles for them so that we could show you. I mean, this is the early days of Facebook. So the privacy stuff is like not really there. You could just like grab someone's full friend list and <laughs> just display it to someone else. So we could, and like all their photos and everything. It was just like a total wild, like <laughs> completely different world. And so you could like grab all their friends' photos and all their friends' names, and then you would display that to other people. Uh, and you'd be filling out essentially their profiles for them by asking that, like answering personality questions about them. We had like leaderboards of like your most attractive friends ranked for you. I mean, it was like totally different, like crazy experience. And uh, it was just so, so one thing I learned pretty early was just, it was so overcomplicated and people really craved simplicity. I, you know, we would, people would join this and be like, why? I'm thought I'm here to like date new people. Why are you showing me my friends? Why am I answering questions about them? What are these weird leaderboards? Uh, and so that was like, one piece of it and the other the other assumption that i made untested was that um, people really needed a whole lot of information about someone else in order to like them and engage with them and go out on a date that very quickly again proved to be <laughs> very false um, the more that we stripped it down and the more that we took away from the profile uh, and the easier that we made it for people to join uh, the you know the more people liked it the more people joined the more people got fascinated by it so there were definitely some things about behavior that were untested that were just totally wrong, in my opinion. How did the whole um, sort of designed to be deleted concept come about? Yeah, so that's a whole... Um, so there were kind of like two major reboot experiences at Hinge. I, we basically took it to the brink of bankruptcy twice, almost three times, actually. And... Um, so the first time was when it was on the desktop version and we really weren't getting much traction. Uh, still hadn't heard of, of Tinder at that point. And we were getting the, all the feedback I was talking about. It's too complex. People don't need all this information. And also, so this was now 2012. And we were like, if, this, if we're really going to be the dating company of the future, this thing has to be on mobile. So we decided that we would completely rip down the existing product, rebuild it for mobile, and take our last $25,000 and throw a launch party in Washington, D.C. Uh, and we did. We had like a 2,500-person launch party and uh, had everyone come. And you had to have the app on your on your phone in order to get in. And that was sort of the next day more people logged in than I think we like ever had on the app ever. And then it just kept growing from there. So we knew we really had something. So that was re reboot number one. And then what happened was, you know, we started to get some traction. We started to compete with Tinder, who was like really obviously had like a huge 2013, 2014, 2015. And we, you know, what happened was we just got really like focused on the competition. We were looking at what features they were releasing. We're like, oh, like they have the swipe feature. Like, what are we doing with this, this X and heart? We should like have people swipe. And oh, we should simplify the profile and oh, we should. And pretty soon our product just looked more and more like theirs. And the more it looked like theirs, like the more our growth started to slow. And the more that, um, even though we were pretty big, especially in the East Coast at that point, um, you know, we just, it just really felt like um, we weren't living up to the mission that I originally created. And around that time, this, this, um, reporter 
wrote this article in, in Vanity Fair about the dawn of the dating apocalypse and how, and this is like this article just caught fire because I think it really captured the zeitgeist of the time, which was that dating apps had turned, you know, dating and romance into like a, you know, superficial hookup factory. And so uh, I was like this, and we were cited like very heavily in this article. And I was like, man, this is not the world that I wanted to create. This is not the company that I wanted to create. And, uh, I went out with a friend, uh, or not a friend, my chief brand officer, she's now a friend, uh, Katie Hunt. And we were sitting there, I was about to go home for Thanksgiving in 2015. And I was just like, this is like not the company I want to build. It feels like we're going to lose. Uh, I really wish I could just tear this whole thing down and start over from scratch. And at that point, it felt a little harder than the last time. We didn't have two employees. We had 30 and we'd raised, you know, $15 million or whatever. And uh, she was like, well, what's, you know, what's stopping you? And I was like, well, uh, nothing is stopping me, I guess. And, and that inspired me. And I went home over that Thanksgiving and I thought about it. I went back to the board and I said, I know we have this momentum. I know we raised all this money, but I really don't think the trajectory of this company where it's going is we're going to be a multi-billion dollar dating company of the future. Uh, younger people are getting older. They're looking for something more intentioned. Um, these swiping apps have been around for a few years now, and people are going to start looking for that thing that is really designed to help them get into a real relationship. So I want to tear this thing down. I want to completely start from scratch, do a rebrand, new code base, new interface, I don't know what it's going to look like yet. And uh, they, the board got behind me and that's what we did. And I let go of half the team, took the remaining uh, about 15 people. And we started this new company from scratch. And we really took a step back as a company and spent this retreat. We actually, I took the, the, the group on a retreat right after to let everyone go. And we just dissected one. We broke down what happened with the product and why it wasn't working. But more importantly, we dissected what happened with the culture and what did we do wrong that led to us copying the competition and getting so growth obsessed that we were just focused on engagement numbers and not really focused on delivering what our customers came to us for, which was great dates. And we set a new set of principles about how we would operate as a company that we were doing it different than we were doing it before. Uh, and that was really the foundation of what hinges today. I'm and curious. That's where that idea of design to be deleted came from. Got it. And I'm curious what those sort of principles were because the the, the sort of scenario you talk about um, is obviously very common. Like we see it all the time where there are companies like pressured to innovate because they're just another me too, or they're sort of maybe they, maybe they even pioneered that entire industry, but someone else came along and did it better. And now they're just trying to play catch up. And, you know, at, at that moment, you know, you see companies sort of veer off of the path of that, what they've always been on and maybe don't even stick to their core mission anymore. And now they're just confused and you know, it's no surprise that a lot of those companies end up having to shut down or just can't pivot into something that is actually working. In your case, like, what did you sort of, after you digested all of this, what did you sort of boil it down to in terms of, you know, this is how we're going to do it moving forward? Because clearly things worked out, right? Like clearly Hinge ended up became, becoming a very successful app. But like, what was that kind of conversation like at that time? Uh, a couple of things. One was one clear principle was about customer over competition, right? I mean, it was like 
we were everyone had all the competitor apps on their phones and we would look at features they were releasing and that was determining our roadmap it was like oh they integrated instagram we have to integrate instagram and like oh they just came out with this new you know instead of really focusing on user research and thinking what was different and unique about the people who were coming to hinge that they were looking for more intentioned relationships so that was like one very fundamental component of what we wanted to do differently uh, and very much led to the new interface and, and making a lot of decisions about the app um, that, uh, and which leads into a second thing is that the number one metric for us going forward would not be growth, engagement, matches, anything like that. It would be great dates. We would actually start measuring which of our users were going on dates and whether or not they were good. And then we would optimize everything around that and features that made that better would go in and features that did not make that better would go out. That uh, also really led us to do things that were like, I think venture capitalists and other people would probably have considered us crazy for doing, like having a signup process that where we lost 25% of our users because we were like, well, no, if you're serious about a relationship, you need to add six photos you need to answer three prompts. You need to add all this extra information about yourself. And it was a lot easier, obviously, to just have like the one quick sign on and you're in and you're swiping. But what it led to us is like having a really intentioned user base. We, you know, we did get rid of the swiping and we, we had people, you have to like something about the person, like a piece of content about that person and even comment on it. That, uh, you know, really changes people's liking behavior. People become way more selective. There's way fewer likes in the system. And that creates a way less engaging experience. Your phone's not always lighting up with matches and that kind of thing. But each match is actually, you know, a better match and more likely to lead to a date. We show you who likes you for free uh, because we don't want you to game the system by liking everyone to see who likes you back uh, because that messes up our algorithm and we can't learn your taste very well. There's like a lot of little decisions like that, which is why we sort of say that we're designed to be deleted. So those are two of the biggest ones. And then there are also some real core cultural aspects about really learning to trust and empower the team. I think when you're a, when you're a young founder and a young company, it really is about, you know, it, it is about you and the founding team. Uh, and, you know, you kind of are just like directing the show, like a small dictatorship and, and that works and that's fine. But as you start to get to like 30, 40 employees, that doesn't, work anymore you have to completely change your mindset as a as a leader to like i know what to do and let me tell everyone what to do to, to get us there it's you become a coach and it's about trusting empowering and uh it's no longer about me making the decisions about what to do it's about me coaching and challenging people but actually letting them make the decisions about what to do so these are some things that are probably like maybe sound obvious but, but like, you, you know, when, when you're a young company, you don't commit to these things. It's really easy for you to, to grab back the reins as the founder and think, like, we need to go this way. We need to go do this. But what that usually ends up doing, at least in my case, was just a lot of whiplash and a lot of failed product features that I thought were a good idea, but were actually terrible ideas. So uh, the, there were a lot of learnings like that. And, we, and, and the final learning is that we documented all of this so that everyone knew the culture. Everyone knew how we were going to do things going forward. And, uh, and it was no longer about my personality or someone at the top deciding what to do. It's like, we're going to document in a principled way, what we believe about the market, what we believe about how we should operate. And everyone who walks in the door from day one will understand how our culture operates. Mm -hmm. Justin, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, um, 
had Tinder and other dating apps not been out there um, while Hinge was also in business, do you think that you would have come to the realization that something needs to change? We need to reinvent and revamp the way we're doing things? Or was it because of the competition, because of what was out there, that you had to go through that process that you just described? I just don't think we had a super clear vision for for a mission about what we were really out there to do as a company. I think we were just like, we want to grow fast and be a famous dating company. We didn't have a strong thesis on the best way to do that is to build the most effective app and uh, and focus on that above all things. So. And, and that was especially clear in light, I think, of the competition, which did kind of lean gamey and, um, mm-hmm. and I think, create. It just wasn't designed. We'll just say it was not designed for people who were really looking for a serious relationship. Right. You didn't have a lot of information on people. You didn't have a lot of filtering options. You didn't have. It just like wasn't really designed for people who were more intention. Right. I think Hinge's more or Hinge's goal was to become a dating app, not just a hooking up or one night, two night type thing. It was more so how do you really get to know a person online, virtually, et cetera. I guess with what you just mentioned, Justin, what is your advice for entrepreneurs or, you know, entrepreneurs or future entrepreneurs um, on how they should think about these things before it gets to a point where they've already launched the business and they have, a team of 20, 30, 50 people and have to let people go. I guess, how do you avoid, you know, the situation that you ran into with Hinge um, that you just described? It's, yeah, I mean, it's all the things that I, I just said in terms of like the way that we ended up changing our, our business model. I do, But sometimes, you know, you need, to hindsight's always 2020 and sometimes you have to like play in the market a little bit to learn these things it's that learning loop that i was talking about before and it's uh i think a strong startup is is not one that doesn't ever make mistakes it's the one that learns fast from mistakes changes the operating system and uh and then goes shows back up the next day again and everyone's still smiling that I think is the formula for success, not, uh, you know, how do we do everything perfectly? So I, you know, it's hard to say we would have done things differently per se. We had to go through those learnings and failings as an organization to learn what was going to make sense for us in the market. And we also had to see the market evolve. Sure. Switching gears just a tad bit. I know you had given us a preview earlier uh, of the happy ending with Kate, but Bring us back. What happened? I mean, like, how did this reignite? Yeah. So, uh, kind of a crazy story. Um, so, Hinge had launched, and we were. This was like twenty, beginning of twenty, late late twenty fourteen, early twenty fifteen. So, this was before the big reboot that I just talked about, and. So Hinge was kind of at the top of our game and we just raised a bunch of money and this writer reached out to me who was doing an article and she had actually downloaded Hinge, 
the very first person that came up for her, they'd matched and fallen in love. And she was like, how did, you know, she wanted to interview me. Like, how is this possible? Like, how did you, how did your algorithm know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the truth is it was total luck. I don't, you know, I just, we're not that good. Uh, and so, you know, we had this interview and it's a pretty like standard kind of founder, early founder interview for some, for something she was writing. And at the end of the, um, uh, interview, she was like, one last question, like, have you ever been in love? And I was like, well, once a long time ago, but I didn't realize it until it was too late. Mine, this has been like seven years, almost eight years since I've seen Kate. And no contact for how long? Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't contact her for those first four years until I f- finally sent her that note. Not because I didn't think about her, by the way, but just because I screwed up this girl's life enough. And I decided that I just wouldn't, I just like wasn't going to bother her. Then I reached out that one time. And then I would actually write her, uh, talk about persistence. I would write her once a year on her birthday, uh, an email. And the email would range from, hey, I hope you're well, would love to be friends one day, to uh, I think the most recent one had been, I'll come over to London with an engagement ring, <laughs> if that's <laughs> what it takes. And I never, never heard back to any of these emails. So, uh so that was the only contact that I had, except after that last one, I'd been defriended on Facebook. And so I think I got the message that like, I wasn't going to like, right. I, I I clearly was crossing the line into stalkerdom at that point and decided that that was probably going to be it. Anyway, so Deborah asked about this person and I, uh, or asked about, you know, if I've ever been in love and I tell her the story of Kate and all the twists and turns and on and off again and how I'd like, you know, essentially she was the muse for Hinge. And she was like, well, is she like, what happened? Like, where is she? And like, well, she's engaged to be married. And, uh, and she's like, well, you have to do something. You have to like reach out. You have to, I'm like, I've reached out. Like, she's like, you wrote emails. You need to do something dramatic. You need to like fly over and wherever she is. And because of course she doesn't trust you. Uh, and like an email is not going to cut it. And I was like, lady, you're crazy. It's, uh, you know, it's been eight years and I don't think that there's much of a chance. That said, that was like banging around in my head, all that advice. And I was headed over to London for a hinge launch party. And I write her this one last email and I said, Hey, um, gonna be in London. Weird to think I'm never going to see you again. Would love 15 minutes to say hi and goodbye if you want to meet up for coffee and to i i get this email back the next day and she's like well you're a terrible stalker i don't live in london anymore i live in zurich and uh but you know i'll hop on the phone if you want to hop on the phone next weekend and we can catch up and i'm like that's it and i like went to the airport and i bought a ticket to zurich <laughs> like this is my moment and uh and i flew to zurich that next day and touched down and um she sent me a message the next day she's like okay like you know i can talk whenever you're ready to talk and i said well great because i just i'm going through customs in zurich right now and we met up in a cafe and um that connection was like definitely still there 
uh, and she was getting married in a month, um, uh, and like big 400 person wedding, people flying from five continents into Zermatt. And, uh, we decided that we would take a chance. And so she flew back to America with me and moved into my little studio apartment in the West Village. <laughs> and, uh, and the rest is history. All right. There's a big, obviously, question here because from a negotiation and persuasion standpoint, a lot of people can use this advice. I mean, what the hell did you say? What, I mean, what the hell went on <laughs> during, that, during that coffee? Because, you know, there's a lot of great negotiators out there, but the woman was about to get married in a month with a foreign-person wedding after eight years of ignoring you. I mean, you got to tell us because I don't – there's got to be something behind it. I – I wasn't the only one that really felt our connection was really special back in college. And I really just think I broke a lot of trust during that time. And, um, but I don't know, we just had such a special, and I think we'd both really romanticize each other a lot. And I will say that like, I had changed a lot over those years. I mean, I'd gotten sober, I'd started a company. Like I, I'd really changed from the human being that she knew back then. So when I was flying over, Part of me thought, you know, I'm going over there, but, you know, I'll bet we see each other. We laugh this off. We realize, like, you know, uh, we've changed so much, but we can still be friends and that'll be the end and I'll fly over to London. And part of me thought, like, oh, my God, this is the person and we're going to get we see each other and we're going to think it's not anything and we're going to get married. Uh, and I don't know. I just, like, walked in that coffee shop and saw her and we sat down and we just talked for like eight hours straight it, i didn't go in with the hard sell you know we i just i just we just shared and caught up on our lives over the last eight years we we, we went to this coffee shop we, we literally never even we realized at the end of that we sat down at like 3 p.m and got up at 9 or 10 p.m and we hadn't even gotten up to like get a water or a coffee yet and I don't know. It was just, we were chatting and originally she was like, well, obviously I'm not calling off my wedding, but we should really stay in touch. And then halfway through, she's like, well, if I were going to call off my wedding and then by the, the end of like the end of those seven hours, she was like, I think I'm calling off my wedding. And we just felt, I don't know how to describe it. It was just palpable. And we both knew that this was, this, we were going for it. You know, Justin, one thing that really stands out is like, had you sent an email instead of going in person, like what would have happened, right? Like you wouldn't have sat down and talked for eight hours. You would have maybe gone on a phone, like who knows, right? And like that really speaks obviously to the power of just human connection, like physical connection, just being like next to somebody and, and sharing that moment. And so I guess talking about sort of the future of dating and like apps and obviously this pandemic, like change a lot of things in terms of people's behaviors. Like you weren't going out anymore. You had to connect virtually, which um, I guess maybe had, 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 had its goods and bads, but I guess to your, in your opinion, like what place in society do you think technology has when it comes to dating? Like, do you think it'll always just be, you know, a, a just another way of, of maybe connecting with people that you might not have connected in real life because you're sort of, you know, whatever in your town, in your city, and you only go so many places and see so, so many people. And um, will it always just be there, or do you think that it'll kind of move into like later stages 
I mean, do you have any worries about it at all? Like, what are you thinking about? Well, in, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think, I certainly don't think dating apps are going to displace, you know, real human in real life relationships, right? I mean, if you look at your, the time spent on a dating app relative to the time spent with your, the person that you find on a dating app, like we're talking like 0.001%. It's just the very beginning. Uh, the the problem that I think dating apps originally solved was the problem of access. It was the problem of, you know, I can't meet anyone and okay, here are some options and I can go through and then, and then meet up and on essentially, you know, the original dating apps were just like a, essentially a blind date, right? Like I see their photo, I see a tagline, we exchange five messages back and forth and then I'll just see what happens. Where I think that there's an opportunity for the apps to evolve is to uh, really develop one a much higher sense of fidelity, so that you get be- you get a better sense of this person, uh, and I would say even better than you would get in real life, because you can design, for example, our prompts. We've really optimized our prompts over time to pull out pieces of information that people find the most interesting and can really develop a conversation around, and they're not necessarily things that you would have talked about if you just casually struck up a conversation in a bar. So you can get a really good sense of someone's values. And so you can see like two or three dates in whether this is really going to be someone that you're going to be interested in. So that I think is really helpful. And that was something that the future where dating apps are going, I think it can be really helpful to fidelity. And the second I think is fostering that initial spark and that initial connection. And I think there really is an art and a science to that, that dating apps can help people with. Uh, people are starting to use video chat. Um, they're spending you know, some time on the app before they actually meet in person. So what can we do to supercharge that connection, develop a sense of intimacy, uh, get people really excited about that first connection so that it's not this kind of cold start uh, first date blind date but rather you really feel like you've got some momentum with that person going into the first date so it feels like it's the second date or the third date by the time you get there so those are the areas that i think we aspire to um, do really well as a dating app have you seen there's that there's less stigma now around people not only meeting but getting married as a result of uh, meeting on a dating app are we seeing people get Sorry, is get there, married? Is, sorry, is there less of a stigma around folks using dating apps and eventually getting married to a person that they've met through Hinge, Tinder, etc.? Oh yeah, I don't. I think that there's, especially among younger people now, there's no stigma around using a dating app. In fact, I feel like there's almost a stigma around meeting in real life. It's like you just like ran to that stranger on the street. Like, <laughs> uh, that's kind of weird. So, uh, no, I think that at this point, you know, it's interesting and you see it in like the New York Times wedding section. And it's just like nor- very normal for people to mention at this point yeah. that, you know, they met on Hinge, uh, a meaningful percentage of, of, the, of the New York Times wedding session now says that they met on Hinge. And I just don't, I just, it seems so normal now that it's no different than, 10 or 15 years ago saying you met at a bar or through friends or in college. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I guess in terms of like how you guys at Hinge, like the whole team thinks about sort of the future and, and, and how to sort of build for the future, like what what sort of things do you look at? Like obviously behaviors on the app is one thing, behaviors in real life is another thing. But um, what's what sort of, I guess, what are you sort of looking at now um, in terms of how to sort of constantly innovate and adapt and cater to where where people are going in terms of how they want to meet people and, and date people. Yeah, I really do think that we're in the early innings of how effective dating apps can be. They're still pretty rudimentary when you look at them. It's just like going through random people, oh, it's a match, let's and then like trying to cold start a conversation with them and then hopefully it goes somewhere and they don't get distracted. And then maybe you can like parlay that into trying to meet up offline. I, I just think that there's so much core innovation work to be done on that basic flow to understand the friction points, to understand um, what people are trying to suss out through their conversations. Like, what are you really trying to learn about this person? Uh, I think that the ideal is that profiles would be so um uh, have such high fidelity and be so in depth that by the time you match with someone, you're just like, okay, like I see your profile, you see mine. We don't really need to do a lot more. Uh, I, I know and trust that we can just meet up in person and have a good conversation. And I think that would be, or you just move straight to a 15 minute video chat where you get a quick vibe check and you're like, okay, you know, I have a sense that we're going to get along and we can go meet up in person. So that I think is where. I see it going. I think it's just like more efficient, richer media, higher confidence that you're going to really like this person versus it feeling again, still like a little bit of a blind date. Like, "Mm, I don't really know what this person's like, but I'm going to go meet up and find out. Mm -hmm. What has changed most about you as a leader from the beginning of starting this company to now, you know, with, with all the things that you've learned and the, people that have come and gone at Hinge and the new features and programs that you've launched. What are some of the biggest takeaways for you um, as Hinge's visionary, as Hinge's leader? Gosh, I I don't even know where to begin. I'm a completely different human being than the one who started Hinge in 2011. I mean, I feel like I live in a different universe than that, than that person. I mean, truly, like, I am just not the same human being. This this experience has shaped and crafted my personality and worldview in a way that, it, like, it's irretrievable to even consider, like, what I was like back then. But so with that said... Um, what have I, well, well, have I grown? I guess I while you think about it, the reason I ask is because there's a lot of new founders now that have come out of the pandemic that came out before that will come uh, forever more uh, that may have never even thought about being an entrepreneur or starting their own company or taking on that risk. And they probably believe like, I don't have what it takes. I've never done this. There's no roadmap. There's no playbook. There's no rules to play this game. And not that you were in that exact same position, but no one told you how to build a dating app. No one told you how to lead people, how to uh, establish a culture, how to establish processes. What is it that you would say to those folks that are in day one now or day 25 or day 100 
and they still don't know. They still don't know what the hell is going to happen. They don't know who they are. They don't know what the company will be. Yeah. I I think it goes back to some of the lessons that we've already touched on. I mean, the idea of, of persistence and flexibility and focusing on where you are. I, there's just no better way to learn what you should do and what interests you and then just like getting out there and trying it like you just you don't learn and you don't make forward progress unless you're out there in the arena doing the thing even if it's really poorly like i was an embarrassingly bad entrepreneur when i started this company i knew nothing about leading people i knew nothing about product design i knew nothing about uh like i i mean i knew i just it's I just laughable how little I knew about uh, how to build a company. And I've just learned all of it through uh, persistence, trial and error, and continually just like showing up the next day and like, well, I'm gonna try to do it a little bit differently this time. And over time, I've also learned that like, get mentors, people who've actually walked this path before and uh, maybe you can actually learn a few things from them that they can help you avoid some of the pitfalls that they've made. I used to have this this one founder who graduated a few years behind me at Colgate, and he would schedule a meeting with me every quarter and ask me just the best questions. And I'm like, ah, I feel like I'm just giving you all my secrets. Like, I, you know, you're going to like now not make all these same exact mistakes that I did because I was just like two years ahead of him in the process and I'd gone through all the learnings and I'd done all the trials and failures. And like now I'm just like giving away for free all the secrets that I have about how to handle all these problems that he's now facing. I think that that is, um, you know, if you can learn from other people's mistakes, all the better than learning from your own. But there's a lot of value in in learning from your own because there's just no better teacher than than failure yeah. <laughs> and uh and just like really experiencing it for yourself there's just such value in that honestly not to mention we talked about the skepticism of you know like you know you're you're you're, you're, you're younger you, you question sort of all this stuff so it's like is it really what it is like I, I need to experience it to be able to be like okay like i'm gonna write this off as you know learning experience <laughs> right um but i you know i'm curious you know we talked about sort of again like the first wave of dating websites you know match.com some of like the older stuff and then we talk about you guys coming into the scene and tinder and sort of the battle battling there in those you know mid to 2010s um and then i think i read if i'm not mistaken that match.com who owns tinder also bought uh or acquired hinge in 2018 2019 ish um how has that process been for you? Like, how does that work? Right. Cause you guys are, I mean, not as competitors, right? Like you guys are competing, but you're under one umbrella. Like what's, is there any conflict there? Like, do you, do you think about those things at all? Or do you, are you just sort of focused on making sure hinge is successful? I mean, the short answer is I'm mainly focused on making sure Hinge is successful, but we're in a pretty different market. We're a little bit older, we're a little bit more intentioned. Like we've kind of, we, we have our own worlds that we play in. And um, uh, so I don't think, well, I don't really think about Tinder as, as our 
competition. I think people like graduate from Tinder to Hinge when they're ready to find a relationship. A lot of people use both, uh, you know, for different use cases and, and that's totally fine as well. Uh, and, you know, the match, being part of Match Group was definitely a transition as a, as a founder, right? I mean, uh, it was scary and, you know, heartbreaking in some ways to sell the company. And, but I just, I knew it was going to be the best thing for Hinge, the company. I knew it was going to be the best thing for my employees. I was going to be, knew it was going to be the best thing for the mission because they just had such incredible expertise in scaling a company and um, talk about like being able to learn from other people's failures, right? There's like a whole portfolio of other dating apps that you can, you can learn from. Uh, so but I also knew, you know, going into that, that a lot of times founders don't survive these kinds of acquisitions. And uh, I was very conscientious of that. And, but, you know, I think that Match Group's an incredible company. I've had an incredible experience there. Uh, they've been such good partners to us. And uh, the relationship has really worked out incredibly well. So. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, it all makes sense. Like, I guess when you paint that picture of like sort of the journey of the, you know, I guess uh, the age range of, of like a little bit younger and it's, it's kind of like they're kind of covering all the bases. Right. So um, that all that totally makes sense. Um, but yeah, just I, I don't know Posh, if you had any other questions, but this has been a, this has been an awesome conversation. I mean, learning about sort of where this all started in your personal story and journey. It's incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we can't you know, wait to see what happens next with you guys and hinge and um sorry with you and hinge uh but uh yeah I, you know thank you thank you for your time thank you very much thank you justin